0: first ran for governor in 2014. One of his big goals was to get Arizona off the late night punchline list. Arizonans had grown accustomed to being featured on late night TV. After all, we had our controversial Senate Bill 1070, the immigration enforcement law, and national figures like former Governor Jan Brewer and former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio.
1: Whether Ducey has succeeded in improving Arizona's image seems irrelevant at the moment. That's because the state senate has put Arizona back in an unwanted glare over its audit of Maricopa County's presidential ballots taking place slowly at the state fairgrounds. Here's Trevor Noah of The Daily Show last week. This is the third audit they've done in Arizona. At this point, you aren't going through the effort of counting again unless you
2: know the guys you're hiring are gonna give you the result you want.
1: Seth Meyers and John Oliver both commented on the audit on their shows recently as well. And national news organizations like CNN and The Washington Post have touched down in Phoenix to cover what's going on in the Arizona Veterans Memorial Coliseum.
0: With Arizona back in the spotlight, we turned to an outside expert to get a sense of what this all means. Our interview took place a few days before Ducey signed legislation that would remove certain voters from the permanent early voting list. For that, we talked with Rick Hassan, who is the foremost voice in this sphere. He was CNN's 2020 election law analyst and is pretty much known as the go-to guy on anything happening around the country involving election laws.
1: this week's episode of The Gaggle, Rick gives us the big picture on the audit and the long-term effects this could have everywhere.
0: a law professor at Cal Irvine who runs the respected election law blog. Thanks for joining us on The Gaggle.
2: Great to be with you.
1: Rick, uh, here in Arizona, we've been really watching this ballot audit uh, playing out here for weeks. Uh, Meanwhile, Georgia's passed a series of voting law changes. Florida has now followed suit. How does Arizona fit into what's happening across the country after the presidential election? So
2: I think you're right to see uh, what's happening in Arizona as not limited to the state, but part of a larger national movement. And I think you can understand this as a reaction to the 2020 election. In the 2020 election, we had the unprecedented situation where a presidential candidate, in this case, Donald Trump, Uh, claimed uh, without evidence that the election was rigged or stolen. And even after he lost the election, he pushed that uh, even harder and he's continued to push it. And so one response to that has been there's been a lot of talk among Republican legislators of rigged elections. There's been push for new laws that make it harder for people to vote and the change who gets to count the votes. And We've seen that in uh, Georgia. We see that now going on in Texas and Florida, and uh, there's talk of it in Arizona. Uh, But what is unique to Arizona is this audit. There's really nothing else like this in the country. Uh, It's kind of like a punchline to jokes when you hear about the bamboo stuck in the uh, paper and the UV lights. But I think it really is deadly serious because it is yet another way of trying to undermine uh, voter confidence in the fairness and integrity of the U.S. electoral process.
0: So let's talk a little bit about some of these um, tactics being used. So we have the founder of the firm that is doing Arizona's audit. He has posted unsubstantiated allegations about fraud on Twitter. Um, Those posts have now been deleted. We have a former state lawmaker who appeared on the ballot, lost his race, and was at the January 6th riot at the Capitol. He's participating in the inspection. We have volunteers who are being recruited um, to participate in this through sort of conservative websites, conservative channels. And as you mentioned, we have auditors who are looking for evidence of bamboo um, based on this kind of wild conspiracy that ballots may have come from Asia. Is all of this evidence of a non-biased, impartial audit?
2: Well, certainly not and And let's be uh, clear about how audits usually happen. So typically, there will be uh, an initial vote count uh, that will happen on election Day. And I'm speaking generally, not not necessarily the procedure in arizona to to, um, to you know to to any exact degree. Uh, but the general idea is you do a canvas on election night, which gives you a rough sense of what the vote totals are. And then over the next, days and sometimes weeks, depending upon how many mail-in ballots there are, Uh, the numbers are refined. So you figure out exactly what else needs to be counted. There are ballots where there are questions about how they should be counted. All of those are resolved. And then there is a a winner that's announced. Uh, After that, uh, or sometimes even before that, there may be calls for a recount. There could be litigation. Uh, There are official ways of conducting the recounts. In Georgia, for example, Uh, when during the 2020 election, there were three different kinds of recounts. So some of it depends on if you're using machines and if you're gonna count by hand. Um, There were in Arizona lawsuits and checks on the ballots and uh, there was found to be nothing wrong with the, the process. What's going on right now is not an audit. It's not an audit in any meaningful sense. It's not following accepted standards in terms of protection of the ballots. So there was reporting early on that there were uh, blue pens that were available on the floor, which could have been used to alter ballots um, in terms of ballot security, in terms of what's being counted. And also it's going very slowly. It's going on for months. The ballots are apparently gonna have to be moved because um, there are other events taking place in the same venue. So um, even putting aside the WHO, Uh, And cyber ninjas is not a term that those of us in the election administration field had ever heard of before. Um, Even putting aside the question of who and whether those people might have an axe to grind or a bias, uh, it's not done under the standards that apply to audits, which are meant to ensure fairness and transparency. Uh, and just one more point about transparency: the fact that members of the press are not allowed as observers in this process unless they volunteer uh, to work with the team—that uh, is also not something that uh, is ordinary. Uh, ordinary uh, principles of fairness in election counting and election recounting is that you allow in bipartisan and nonpartisan observers, including the press, to to understand what the process is. So, uh, regardless of what uh, the uh, Arizona audit concludes, even if it concludes that Joe Biden indeed did win the, the votes along the numbers that uh, Maricopa County reported, I would take nothing that this audit produces as worth anything in terms of uh, affirming or rejecting the validity of the count that was conducted by election officials.
1: So uh, the Department of Homeland Security issued uh, a statement in November declaring this most recent presidential election the most secure in American history. Do you share that view and and secure from whom or from from what?
2: So I think that uh, that statement was made because uh, the president had been repeatedly claiming that the elections were rigged or stolen. You had it wasn't just Trump, you had the Attorney General of the United States, Bill Barr, who was warning about the danger of foreign interference with ballots, specifically mail-in ballots being sent in from foreign countries, all kinds of conspiracy theories. And um, when it came to cyber attacks on uh, voter registration databases, or it came to any kind of fraud that we can detect in elections, um, this did seem to be a very clean election and a kind of a miraculously clean election, given the fact that it was conducted in the middle of a pandemic with with inadequate funding. In fact, it took about half a billion dollars in private funding, much of it coming from Mark Zuckerberg um, and his charitable foundation, to actually give local election officials all of the um, resources they needed to run a fair election. (laughs) And now one of the responses to that is states are barring the ability to take private money uh, in elections to help uh, run the elections. But from all indications, the number of voter fraud cases that are even being investigated is quite small. There were no large scale machine breakdowns that we know of or uh, anything that led to any kind of question about the validity of election results. And so uh, while I can't say it was the cleanest in American history, Uh, because we've never looked as closely at other elections. It was certainly a very clean election, and there's no reason to believe that anything that happened in any state in the the United States um, uh, reflected a, a kind of fundamental problem with how the election was run that would call the results into question in any race that I'm aware of.
0: Former President Trump and a lot of conservatives are talking about the need to ensure election integrity. That obviously is important, I think, to everyone. How would you assess the steps that they have taken in these states, these various states at this point? Are they trying to address legitimate concerns or are these sort of efforts more geared towards voter suppression?
2: So, you know, when states pass election laws, they tend to be a mixture of different things. Um, And so some provisions of the law, those laws could be fine and they could um, uh, make things better. Uh, uh, Some, it might be uncertain. So, for example, in Georgia, uh, rather than doing signature matching uh, to determine whether an absentee ballot um, has come in from a person who uh, is who uh, he or she says uh, they are, uh, they're going to require something like uh, last four digits of your social or your driver's license number. Now, in some ways, that makes things better, uh, because it is a uh, signature matching is an inexact science. In some ways it might make it worse because not everybody's gonna have access to those numbers and some people might be disenfranchised. So we can argue on the margins about certain provisions of certain laws. But I would say the thrust of of many of these laws is aimed in two ways. Number one, make it harder for some people to vote. Uh, So for example, uh, Texas is now considering uh, making it a crime for local election officials to offer an absentee ballot application to a voter. I mean, that's just astounding. um, But that would be a crime. Um, And the idea is you know, we don't want so many people voting, especially people who might vote for Democrats. So that looks like what I would call voter suppression. What I'm concerned about uh, just as much, if not more, is uh, something a little bit different, which is what I would call election subversion. And I had a piece in The New York Times about this a few weeks ago. The concern here is not you're making it harder for people to vote, you're not giving them water when they get online. The concern instead is, Are you going to mess with who can decide how the counting is going to take place? And so in that same Georgia law, Brad Raffensperger, who was the Republican Secretary of State who stood up to Trump and refused to find 11,780 votes to change the results of the election in Georgia, he has now been removed, and the Secretary of State has been removed from the election board as a voting member, and now a hand-picked person from the state legislature gets to sit on that board, and now they have the power to take over the election counting processes for a number of months in up to four counties at a time. And you could easily imagine a Republican state legislature wanting to go after Democratic counties like Fulton County, where Atlanta is in Georgia, and take over the how the uh, counting takes place, take over what the rules are, and potentially mess with the election results. That concern about election subversion is new. That's not something that had really been on my radar. And I've been doing this for 25 years. You know, This is uh, a subject I've studied for a long time. Voter suppression is not new. Trying to manipulate Uh, how easy or how hard it is to vote is not new. But in the United States, in terms of recent history, uh, we really haven't worried about the counting being unfair and the kind of things that Trump tried to get the legislatures and governors and election officials to do, which they didn't do in 2020, is going to be somewhat easier in 2024. And that's a kind of ticking time bomb that really makes me concerned.
1: So those are the Republican plans. Uh, Democrats in Congress seem to have some ideas about some election reforms, voting uh, changes that they'd like to see. Give us a sense of what those are and also uh, how legitimately are those framed? Are they addressing problems that are known to exist or are these uh, you know, similarly of, of dubious value? So for
2: years, Democrats have been uh, putting together a kind of wish list of election reforms, Uh, They've been embodied in something that's been known as HR1, which stands for the the first bill in the House of Representatives, and that's done for symbolic reasons. The current version of it is about 800 pages long, and it includes everything from steps that I think would increase election integrity, like requiring every state to use paper ballots for how they cast their votes, uh, to um, things that are on the Democratic wish list, like requiring states to... um, allow felons who have completed the prison portion of their sentences to be uh, allowed to vote in congressional elections, to campaign finance reform, to a bunch of other uh, ethics reform. Uh, Much of this is not aimed directly at the integrity of elections or stopping what Democrats see as voter suppression, but instead aimed at democratic um, uh, priorities in terms of how elections should be run. Um, Separate from H.R. 1 is H.R. 4. H.R. 4 is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. That provision would restore uh, a part of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court had put on hold in 2013 in a case called Shelby County versus Holder. So certain jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination in voting, which included Arizona, uh, had to get permission from the federal government, either from the Department of Justice or from a three-judge court in Washington, D.C. whenever they made a change to voting rules, and they'd have to show that those changes would not make protected minority voters worse off. That provision was put on hold in 2013 when the Supreme Court said that the formula that was used to decide which states were gonna be covered by this provision was outdated. And so Congress didn't have the power to order it anymore. The John Lewis bill among other things would restore that provision. And that would mean that laws like uh, George's law and laws that are being considered in Arizona before they could go into effect, you'd have to get approval from the DOJ. And so um, that provision I think would most directly protect voters at least in states uh, that ha- that would be covered under the new formula. Interestingly, Joe Manchin, who's the Democratic Senator from West Virginia, who's kind of the key vote here because he'd be the kind of the 50th, along with um, Senator Sinema from your own state. Those are the two holdouts, uh, you know, saying that they're not going to uh, blow up the filibuster for voting reform. Uh, Joe Manchin sounded uh, in a recent interview like he's willing to consider something uh, that would deal with voting rights, even if it meant making some filibuster changes. So we'll see. But one of the things he suggested was that this preclearance requirement should apply to all 50 states and we shouldn't single out Arizona or Georgia or other states and it should uh, be applied everywhere. So it's a moving target. Some of it, I think, would be quite welcome. Others of it, given the very closeness uh, in the election uh, excuse me, very closeness in the Senate and the House, seem really unlikely to get through uh, on uh, any kind of uh, timetable um, in in the next few years.
0: Do you have any thoughts on how the nation's courts might view any of this legislation? You know, does it sort of clearly pose problems with the Voting Rights Act or constitutional arguments that The Supreme Court might be especially interested in in taking up, particularly when you have such a large portion of the electorate that just fundamentally believes that this election is not legitimate.
2: Yeah, well, the legitimacy of the election problem is not going to be solved by the Supreme Court. It's really a societal problem. And we need to work on questions about disinformation and and, 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 um, the kind of institutions like a free press and a a competitive political system where people play by the rules. And there's a lot that has to happen for us to get our the legitimacy of our election system back. But on the, on the more direct question about the Supreme Court, it's great that I'm on a podcast in Arizona because uh, the entire country is waiting for the results of the Brnovich case. Uh, this is the case that the Supreme Court... I heard oral argument in a few months ago. It raises the question of how Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is a part of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court didn't touch in that 2013 Shelby County case, how Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act applies to claims that a voting law, like a uh, law that requires voter ID or that restricts the use of absentee ballots, when does that violate the Voting Rights Act? Lower courts have been reading Uh, Section 2 to give some protection to voters. So for example, the initial version of Texas's voter ID law was struck down by the very conservative United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit as a violation of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2. And then the revised version of Texas's voter ID law was upheld by the same court after Texas made it a little bit easier. So it has some teeth. It's not, you know, total voter protection, but it provides some protection. But the Supreme Court has never weighed in on this question, and so the Brnovich case is going to be the first case in which the court will tell us what the lay of the land is, and depending on how the court defines what Section 2 means in this context, that's going to go a long way towards telling us what the standard is going to be in the future and whether or not courts, federal courts, are meaningfully going to be policing uh, these kinds of, of election changes. We expect an opinion from the court by the end of June, which is when they traditionally end their uh, annual term.
1: Rick, uh, one last question for you. Um, do you have a sense as to how closely the public may be watching all of these things, whether it's the Arizona audit or the, uh, the voting-related laws in other states? Uh, does, some folks are saying that this just is something that people aren't really tuned into. Uh, is it really just red meat for political junkies? Uh, do you have a sense of that?
2: Well, I'm probably the last person to ask, since uh, I spend my professional life looking for this uh, kind of content. But I do notice just before we uh, got on to uh, tape this podcast, I went to the CNN website, and the top four stories were about different voting rules. Uh, You know, one was about Georgia, one was about Florida, one was about uh, Texas, and one was about Arizona. So, um, if anyone's looking at the news, uh, you know, this is a, a big deal. You know, even if you're not looking at the news. Uh, recently, the Facebook uh, Oversight Board uh, issued a ruling about whether Donald Trump uh, should remain off the platform. So this stuff is out there. Per- people are certainly not intensely following all of this the way that uh, um, they do during an election. But this stuff is, is, uh, is still out there. And if you look at what's happening in the Republican caucus, with Lynn Cheney uh, about to be removed from the leadership, because she won't buy into Donald Trump's false claims about the election being stolen. Uh, Even if the public is not paying great attention, uh, this um, so-called big lie is still paying dividends for the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party. And the ramifications of that are going to be felt in primaries uh, that are going to be taking place uh, throughout next year and then leading to the 2022 midterm elections.
0: All right, Rick, that's all we got for you. Thank you so much for joining us. Really great insight as as usual. We appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate it.
0: All right, listeners, let's dive into some afterthoughts. Rick was pretty clear that this isn't what he would consider a legitimate effort to evaluate Arizona's election processes. Some Republicans are saying that people aren't really paying attention to this. Will all this matter next year when people are voting again, Ron?
1: Well, Republicans are hoping that only Republicans are paying attention to this, I think. Look, the midterm history in this country for, you know, many decades now has been that the party not in power in the White House and and the party that's not uh, in power in the House and the Senate as well really should be poised to do well. And I think Republicans are banking on that kind of history to repeat itself again. That should speak to a, a good 2022 for them, no matter what else they're doing. But Let's be honest, we've also seen in in recent elections that Republicans have a problem with the kind of suburban uh, voters and independent voters here in Arizona that has made it possible for Democrats to win the state at the presidential level, to lose a couple of uh, Senate races for Republicans. This is uh, something that, Against that backdrop, you're now pumping Republican voters full of beliefs that their votes don't count. And it's at least possible some Republicans might say, why bother? It's also angering people on the left and a lot in the middle. Uh, So I think it remains to be seen whether this is something that will matter by the time we get to November of 2022. But right now, it's kind of a risky bet for Republicans that. The only folks who are watching this are the ones who happen to agree with them. But, you know, Yvonne, you talk to Republicans like former Senator John Kyle, former Governor Jan Brewer. Uh, They're kind of uh, flashing the warning signals to Republicans at the moment. It sounded like Kyle wasn't a fan uh, and Brewer didn't want to talk about the audit, which seems like kind of an indicator there. The most loyal supporters of Donald Trump fully back this. How big of a problem is this for a Republican Party that needs to come together uh in the next year?
0: Well, I think I, I tend to agree with you that it remains to be seen. But if you listen to figures like former Senator John Kyle, who, you know, during his time in the Senate was the number two. I mean, this is this is a national figure, a reasonable voice um on, you know matters of the Republican party. And when you have a a figure like this saying this sort of drama, this sort of um, infighting within the Republican party over what appears to be a very settled matter, right? We know who won the election. No good can come of it for the Republican party. That seems to be his analysis. And the fact that figures like, you know, Jan Brewer, who Is known for speaking her mind, doesn't even want to talk about this thing or touch it, says all you sort of need to hear. There's also, you know, a lot of Republicans down at the State House who just don't want to wade into this thing. They're sort of pretending that this isn't even a thing. They're trying to focus on, you know, their pieces of legislation and policies, and, you know, they're trying to serve the needs of their constituents. And most notably, that typically doesn't include any sort of mention of. The audit. We talked with State Senator uh, T.J. Show from Coolidge, and I asked him, you know, hey, what what could the long term consequences of this exercise be? And his response was pretty candid. He said, "Hell if I know." So that seems to be where at least one wing of the Republican Party is leaving it these days. So I guess the other question that I have about this whole thing is, what happens if there is no widespread fraud that is found? Where where does this sort of leave the Republican Party here in Arizona? Where does this leave this whole effort, Ron?
1: That's a really good question. And I think it's a contingency that a lot of people have not really braced themselves for. Certainly the, the conservative base that has been calling for this, they fully expect to find uh, widespread systemic fraud dead people voting in spades. They they expect to find that Maricopa County had somehow uh, rigged the process, I, I take it. Um, and if that's not the case, I think that um, what it is supposed to do, and I think what we'll hear from the officials, the Republicans who have been pushing this, whether it's Senate President Karen Phan or others who have been invested in this, that, well, see, we're just addressing the election integrity. We wanted to uphold uh, public confidence in this thing, but I don't know that that's going to cut it with the people who have been most uh, interested in in seeing this thing through. And so I think that takes them to a place that's going to be pretty uncomfortable. And oh, by the way, former President Donald Trump has also sort of been very invested in determining that this process was unfair, fraudulent, and I don't know that he will accept that kind of a finding So even if the Arizona officials want to be satisfied with that kind of outcome, I'm not sure that's where it's going to stay. And again, Donald Trump really has uh, an outsized hold on Republican voters moving forward. So if the rest of the Arizona legislature wants to just kind of be done with this, I'm not sure that's going to cut it with the Republican voters who they need next year.
0: That's it for today, Gaggle listeners. As a courtesy note, audio in today's episode came from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah on YouTube. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me, I'm on Twitter, at Yvonne Winget.
1: And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Amanda Liberto. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com.
0: Also be sure to check out Valley 101, an Arizona Republic and azcentral.com podcast that answers all of your questions about the Valley. From silly to serious, you ask the questions and we find the answers. For The Gaggle, I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. We'll see you next week.